Uh, I'm kind of shocked that uh, when Brad said that they're renovating and expanding the women's restroom, that wasn't met with an amen. <laughs> Come on, ladies. Um, well, listen, before we dig into God's word, what do you say we go to the God of his word in prayer? Let's do that now. Father, we trust you. Those of us who have been saved by faith in Jesus, we trust you in all things. We trust you. And you are good, and it's easy to exclaim that phrase when things are going well, when things are good, but not so easy when things aren't. So may we understand, may you change our minds and hearts that all is for your glory, and you are up to something good. You are doing something good for our good and for your glory. Father, I just know that there are people here this morning who maybe right now are going through a season of despair and suffering and agony. I pray that your word brings solace to them. And if there are people in here who are not going through through that season, we will. We will eventually. So may we find our hope in Jesus. May he be the rock of our salvation, the rock in life in the midst of the storms. Church, right now at this time, would you just pray over the preaching of God's word that I would preach faithfully and not a drop for my glory, but all for his. Would you take a minute now and pray over your own hearts and minds that God would till the soil to be receptive to the word that he has for you. God, I don't know what's going on in people's lives. I don't even know how many in this auditorium are truly saved in Christ, but you do. So would you do a great work among us through the Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. One of the most fascinating stories in Scripture you find in Acts 3 through 5. It's a story of Peter and John, and Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. And as they're on their way into the temple, they look to the side, and there's this beggar there who has never been able to walk. He was born paralyzed, never been able to stand a day in his life. And so he is brought there every single day, and he begs people for money, and he goes up to Peter and John and says, hey, would you give me money? And, you know, they check their pockets. Dude, we're broke. We have nothing to offer you. But what we do have to offer you is the greatest thing you could possibly have, Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, we ask that you stand and walk be healed, and this guy stands and walks, and he starts leaping and rejoicing and jumping and praising God and making quite the scene. And so he's in the temple, and everyone sees this, and they recognize this guy, and they're like, I know that guy. That's that that beggar, and he's jumping. That's awesome. (laughs) We got to find these two guys and, and, and hear what they are trying to say. And so Peter shares the gospel, and people get saved. I mean, by the droves, people get saved. Well, the Jewish leaders don't like this too much. So the Jewish council brings them in before them to stand trial. And they ask, by what authority did you do these things? And they're like, by the authority, the only authority, Jesus of Nazareth, who you crucified, but who rose from the dead. And they respond, oh yeah, um, about that, we don't want you to preach in Jesus' name anymore. Just stop that whole thing. And they said, look, whether it's right in your eyes or not, 
We cannot stop preaching Jesus. We will not stop preaching Jesus because there is no other name under heaven by given a man by which we must be saved. Is Jesus or nothing? And <coughs> thank you. So <coughs> the Pharisees and Sadducees tell Peter and John, <coughs> they warn them, they strictly warn them, you cannot preach in Jesus' name. And they threaten them, and then they dismiss them. You know what the very first thing Peter and John do? They preach Jesus, because they're filled with such passion they can't stop. And so several days or weeks later, the Jewish council arrests them again, brings them to stand trial up before them again, and they said, what did we tell you? We told you to stop preaching in Jesus' name, and what have you been doing? You've been doing exactly that. And they said, look, we have to obey God over man. And we told you we were going to preach Jesus. And so the Jewish council, before they dismissed them, they brought some officers, and it says that they beat them. And we're not talking a little slap on the wrist. We are talking a all-out, beaten-to-a-bloody-pulp mugging. And here's their response. It says in chapter 5 of Acts, then they left the presence of the council, not dejected, not upset, not frustrated, not depressed, but rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer honor for the name of Jesus. I can just imagine Peter and John, they're leaving the temple courts and they're walking out and Peter's like, hey, John, dude, check out the size of this bruise for Jesus. How about that? And John's like, oh, yeah? Look at this goose egg on my head. How about that? Look at the size of that thing. Peter, not to be outdone, because he's Peter, goes, yeah, well, look at this gash on my side. Oh, I can see the bone. Gross. Woo! All for Jesus. And they go on kicking their heels and rejoicing and celebrating that they were worthy to suffer for Jesus. And then it says, and every day they did not cease preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Whew. Now we read this, and we are like, what in the world just happened? People don't respond like this. What is going on? These guys are muy loco. This is not normal. Listen, it is if you know Jesus. Jesus changes your heart. He changes your attitude. He changes your affections, your adorations. He changes your ambitions, your goals, your desires, your dreams. He changes you from the inside out. He makes you a new creation. He changes your thought pattern, the way you speak. He changes the way you look at things, your outlook, your perspective, even in suffering. And so we get to the point in Jesus where we see this, and this is the whole notion this morning. This is the main idea. God uses your suffering for your good and for his glory. Turn to Romans chapter 5. As we continue our study in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have been justified by Jesus by faith. That means we've been given a new status in God's sight. And so no matter what you have done, no matter how egregious or abominable your past has been, when you trust in Jesus, God says, righteous. 
You are as righteous and holy and just and pleasing in my sight as my son, Jesus. How incredible is that? Oh, come on now. How incredible is that? And because of that, by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. He reconciles us to the Father. Moreover, through faith in Jesus, we have unlimited access into the infinite grace of God. And so, as it says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. <clears throat> and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's imagine. How many of you are Cubs fans? Show of hands. Okay, good number of you. I should ask how many of you are Sox fans. We'll see who the real fans are. Let's pretend the Cubbies are in the World Series this year. Okay? It's game seven of the World Series. Bottom of the ninth. Two on and two out. Full count. Now, I guarantee not a single person in here is like on their couch playing solitaire. I guarantee you're either standing, you're on the edge of your seat with bated breath. There's runners on first and second. And up comes to the plate, Chris Bryant, my cousin. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I can't get you autographed, sorry. He comes up to the plate and he gets in his stance. The pitcher looks at him. That's the pitch he wants. He looks back at the runners. And he throws the pitch. And it just seems like on TV it's just going in slow-mo. Everyone's like, <gasps> everyone's holding their breath. And Bryant hits it. He knocks it. It's a deep high fly ball. It's going back. It's going back. It's gone. Cubbies win. Cubbies win. Cubbies win. Now how do you rejoice in that moment? Oh, how do you rejoice? And that's a baseball game. Now we're talking about the fact that by faith in Jesus, we have been justified, we have peace with God, we have unlimited access into the infinite grace of God, and now we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait, what? <laughs> what translation is this? Is that a misprint? By the way, you all had the perfect reaction. That's exactly what I wanted. Rejoice in God's glory. Yeah! Rejoice in God's suffering. What? What did you just say? We don't have the same reaction, do we? Rejoicing in God's glory, the hope of God's glory, absolutely, that makes sense. But rejoicing in our sufferings, that makes zero sense. How many of us celebrate when we lose a job, a job we actually like? How many of us celebrate when we lose a loved one? How many celebrate when we go through pain or when we experience heartbreak or we receive a poor prognosis? We don't just spontaneously start singing, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be, you remember that song? Whew. If you don't, here are the lyrics. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. Easy to sing, not so easy to live. Because rejoicing in sufferings is supernatural. 
is something that God does in us. And notice, look at the text. Notice it says sufferings, plural. How many of our sufferings? Well, all of them. 1 Thessalonians 5 says rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, meaning be in a constant state or attitude of prayer. Give thanks in how many circumstances? All circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will is that you rejoice always, pray always, and give thanks always in every circumstance, including every suffering that you go through in life. See, it's easy to do that in the good times, not so much when life is grinding us down into powder. And suffering is one thing that we can be assured we will face in this life. I'm not talking minor inconveniences. Like, oh, I shouldn't have ate those nachos. Now I'm a little gassy. I'm suffering for you, Lord. That's, that's not it. Oh, man, I got to wait an hour to get county line orchard donuts. Are you kidding me? I'm suffering for you, Jesus. I'll rejoice. Or how about this one? My wife and I, several days ago, were on the couch, and she goes, you know, it's not fair. We're at that age where... I'm starting to get, we're starting to get wrinkles and gray hairs, and we're also fighting acne. We have the problems of younger people and the problems of older people. Come on now. And so in that moment, knowing I was preaching this today, I told her, well, you know, suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. Yeah, not the right thing to say. I got a look, probably husbands you've gotten a hundred times, which is this. Like, if you could slap someone with a look, that's what I got. (laughs) We're not talking minor inconveniences. We are talking real heavy-duty, weeping in sackcloth and ashes hardships. Look at the example of Job in the Old Testament. There's this guy named Job from the book of Job, and Job had a good life. He had wealth and possessions beyond anyone's wildest dreams. He had favor and popularity among the people. By all accounts, he had good health and a good family. And in one fell swoop, all that was taken away. Satan, with God's permission, mind you, takes away all his possessions, strikes down his servants, and kills his children instantaneously. I mean instantly. He's there and a messenger comes up and says, Joe, I'm sorry to tell you, but someone has stolen all your livestock, all your possessions, and killed all your servants. And It says, as he's receiving that report, another messenger comes with bad news, and then another messenger comes with bad news, and then the fourth one comes and says, Job, I'm so sorry to tell you this. Your sons and daughters, your your children were dining in a house, and a tornado came upon that house on the foundations, and it all collapsed in on itself, and your kids are all dead. How do you respond to something like that? Job 1, 20 and 21 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, which were signs of deep anguish and grief, lest you think that he didn't care. And he fell on the ground and, what? Worshipped. Saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Talk about rejoicing in sufferings. 
And then Satan inflicts him with a horribly painful disease from head to toe. And as if that wasn't enough, get this, he leaves him with a wife who tells him, well, just curse God and die already. What a peach. (laughs) And his response, shall we receive good from God and not devastation? Satan still isn't done. He surrounds Job with friends who are terrible comforters and accuse him nonstop of wickedness. Satan gives Job terrifying nightmares. He plagues him with depression, self-deprecating, life-despairing thoughts. And he tarnishes his reputation with the locals and makes him despised and repugnant to those who used to adore him. Job had it all. And it all came crashing down in flames. And yet, he desired hope in his suffering. In fact, hope is a prominent word in the book of Job. It's mentioned 34 times more than any other book of the Bible except for Psalms. Job is searching for hope in his suffering. Job 13, though God slay me, I will hope in him. Job 19, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. That's Jesus, by the way. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. We can rejoice in our sufferings because of what they are producing. So what are they producing? What is suffering accomplishing? Well, look at verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Well, if God is so good and powerful, why does he allow suffering to happen to me, to us? Have you ever answered, asked yourself that question? If you haven't, you probably will. This is the most frequently asked question I get in ministry. And it's understandable because in people's pain, they're asking God, why would you allow this to happen? I've actually heard atheists use this as an attempt to disprove God's existence. And so their argument goes like this. Premise number one. If a good and powerful God exists, then there would be no suffering unless there were a reason, there are reasons that would justify God in permitting suffering. Premise number two, suffering in our world exists. Premise three, there can't possibly be any reason that would justify God to permit suffering. Therefore, God must not exist. Do you see the, the holes in this argument? This is a fallacious argument. One of these premises, one, two, or three, has a fatal flaw. Which is it? Hold up fingers, one, two, or three. I see three. That's right. Number one is true just based on logic. Number two, does suffering in our world exist? Oh, yeah. Watch the news. And that leads to number three. There can't possibly be any reason God would allow suffering. That means just one possible reason for God to allow suffering disproves this entire argument. And there are likely hundreds of maybe thousands of reasons that God allows suffering. Reasons beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. And Paul right here in Romans 5 gives a strong reason, namely this, God uses every second of your suffering. Every second of it, every shred of it. Don't think when you're in the midst of cancer, this is pointless. Where's the purpose in this? If you have a loved one die, where's the meaning in this? There is no such thing as meaningless suffering. 
It is producing something in you. It's doing something in you. God is doing something in you, in your life and in your heart. I think some of you need to hear this this morning. Suffering is not the end. And I'm not saying this too shall pass. Have you ever said that to someone? I've done that. I'm guilty of that. When someone's in grief and suffering, we go, well, this too shall pass. That's true. Every season of suffering we have will not last forever. But can I just encourage you, please never say that again to someone who's grieving. Because number one, that phrase is actually not in the Bible. And number two, it dismisses completely how God is using that season of suffering. Don't dismiss the suffering. Suffering is significant. Suffering is not the end. Listen to me. Suffering is a means to an end. Suffering bears fruit. Isn't that just like God? Like the enemy, I just imagine him inflicting us with pain and agony and suffering, and God's like, oh, you think you can thwart my plans and my will? Let me turn it upside down. And God takes something horrible like suffering and redeems it. See, the universe is comprised of a complex array of God's decisions. And we don't have the capacity to comprehend the vastness in God's designs. See, that's, that's the point. Even in our suffering, God is still sovereign, and he really does have a purpose in everything, even your suffering, even your anguish, even your despair. He's producing something in you. Paul says suffering first produces endurance or steadfastness. James says in chapter 1 of James, of the book of James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Several years ago, there was an article from the New York Times called, Work Out Now, Ache Later, which I really love that title. And it goes, it says this, this is an excerpt from that article. Many scientists see that muscle soreness is caused by microscopic tears in the muscle when a certain exercise is new. And these tiny tears produce inflammation and corresponding pain 24 hours to 36 hours later. White blood cells then start to repair the damaged muscle. And as these little tears repair themselves, they prepare the muscles to handle the same type of exercise better the next time. So the muscle gets more resilient, meaning the next time you do that same exercise, you won't be damaged as much. Over time, they build up and become a stronger fiber to lift more weight. Nobody, and I mean nobody, likes the pain of working out. If you do, you are what we call in ministry a weirdo. <laughs> I don't go to Planet Fitness because it's fun and because I enjoy the pain of exercise. It's a means to an end. You don't enjoy the pain of working out, but you must go through pain to build up endurance. Exercise actually tears your muscles, but you must tear the muscle to build the muscle. Listen to me, friends. You don't see it right now in your pain and suffering. But in that suffering, God is building you up. He is making you stronger in him to withstand the storms of life. And with each passing storm, you will be able to endure with him by your side. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance then produces character. Quite literally, in the Greek, it would be testedness. We don't have that word in English. We might say tested by fire. Some of you work at the steel mills. 
And you know that when you are refining metal, you have to superheat that metal to eliminate, to burn away the impurities, to burn away the dross. And then it becomes liquid metal, which you can use to shape and form and mold into any forge that you want. You, you put it into a certain mold. So let's think about sterling silver. Silver is produced the same way. You superheat it, it becomes liquid, and then you put it into the certain mold that you want. Sometimes in life, we go through suffering, and it superheats our life. And God is burning away the impurities, and he's getting you to a point where you are now more malleable. You are moldable. You're shapeable, and he's forging you into a certain mold. God is not producing sterling silver. He's producing sterling character. 2 Corinthians 4 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this, listen, slight momentary affliction. Compared to eternity, it's slight and momentary. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. And as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, fleeting, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It may seem like outwardly you are wasting away under fire, but inwardly, I'm telling you, God is renewing you daily, and he's shaping you and forming you and molding your character. And every ounce of suffering, every little minuscule ounce of suffering results in an eternal weight of incomprehensible glory. Oh, do you see the hope in that? What hope in that, amen? So... Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character ultimately produces hope. I've never run a marathon. It's, the likelihood of me running a marathon is slim to none, but I have several friends who have run a marathon, and so last week I actually was talking to one of them, and I said, man, what? he runs marathons all the time, so I said, what's, what's it like to run a marathon? He said, Jared, it's, there's, there's nothing like it. You can train for weeks or months for a particular marathon. And it, by the way, it's 26.2 miles. That's a lot of miles. I don't even like driving that far. And so you could be halfway through the marathon and you're feeling good. Your body's feeling great. It's feeling grand. And then every runner, every runner, no matter how good shape you're in, hits what's called the wall. And usually he said it's at mile 20. And at the wall, it's like your body goes, nope, done, stop it, stop this foolishness. And your systems start to shut down, your muscles feel like they're on fire, this scorching pain down your legs, your feet feel like leaden weights. Your body literally wants to quit, everything in you wants to quit. And many runners at that point, when they hit the wall, they do, they quit. They're like, I've had enough. But he says, if you push through that wall, something crazy happens, something spectacular your body almost like reboots, and you are given what's called a second wind. And then for that last six miles, it's like the hope of the finish line pulls you through, draws you in. As you just imagine yourself crossing the finish line and the feeling of satisfaction as you do so, it's just pulling you. The hope of the end is pulling you through. And you may be going through pain in life, searing, agonizing pain and suffering, but remember the end Remember the hope of God's glory, the hope of the end is pulling you through. It's pulling you through. It's pulling you through. There is hope 
in that, listen to me, do not give up hope. Do not give up hope because hope is the very thing being produced by suffering in you. When I suffer, I am wrecked. I'm completely undone. And that's good because that is the greatest place I could possibly be. Because God doesn't need more of me. He doesn't need more of my ability, my strength, my wisdom. I need more of him. He gives me hope. In Psalm 42 and 43, the psalmist is basically going through depression. And if any of you ever go through depression, I would encourage you to check out Psalm 42 and 43. The psalmist says things like, my tears have been my food day and night. I pour out my soul. My soul is downcast within me. God, why have you forgotten me? Why am I in turmoil? But his conclusion, one in which he repeats verbatim three times, is this, hope in God. For I shall yet again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope is the anchor in the storm. And I know you feel like in the midst of a season of suffering, it's just wave after crashing wave after wave as it plunges you deeper down into the water. And you just are trying to stay afloat. You're treading water and you just get to the surface and catch a breath before another wave comes crashing down on you. And it seems like you can't catch a breath, but I'm telling you, you will find when you trust in Jesus for salvation, the hope of God tethers you. You don't get swept out to sea. You're not taken by the undertow. Hope in God anchors you and sustains you. Hope holds you up. See, that's why I love missions. Because in missions, we get to take the message of hope to people who have no hope. We get to take the message of grace and peace and truth and life in Christ To people completely devoid of those things, we get to take hope to a hopeless world and say, there is hope in Jesus alone. Which is what makes verse 5 so unbelievably awesome. Look at verse 5. This is incredible. Check this out. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want to give you a challenge. After this service, I want you to go to the prayer wall next to the women's restroom, and I want you to pull out a few prayer requests, read them, and pray over them. You will find that there is a lot of anguish and agony and pain in our church. I've read probably almost every single prayer request on the wall, and I didn't realize the things you guys are going through. Hurting marriages, hurting families, addictions, financial woes, health concerns, concerns for your family or friends who don't yet know Jesus, depression. I mean, you get a sense of the pulse of this church when you read people's genuine, unfiltered prayer requests. Let me read a few of them to you. Pray for my daughter. She's 10 years old, and she feels lonely at school. Her father doesn't see her much. She feels he doesn't care. Pray that God will comfort her. Last week, my husband told me that he feels our marriage is over. We have three children. This was a shock to me. What do I do with this? 
I've never held a job. I just don't know what to make of all this. Do I do nothing? I need prayer for wisdom. Please pray for my children. They don't know that there's anything wrong. Please pray for peace and guidance. Please pray for a dear woman coping with life years after the loss of her husband. She is going through depression. Please pray for a kid who has cancer and is struggling with treatment. He is three years old. You would never know that people at this church are going through immense hurts and pains here. Because when we leave this service, we're going to go out in the commons and we smile and we put on a face. Why? Why do we put on a face? Because the enemy shames us in our sufferings. He says, look at you. You're a mess. What a disgrace. You don't have it all together. People don't want to be bothered by your burdens. They don't want to be trifled with your troubles. Listen to me. Those are lies from the pit of hell. Those are lies that the enemy whispers in our vulnerable state of suffering. And we feel like we must go through life squeaky clean. You see that when you ask someone, how are you doing? What's the usual pat response? Good, fine, doing great, doing well. Okay, listen, if you actually are doing well, don't lie. (laughs) Say that you're doing well. But if you're not, don't lie. Be honest. We give these methodical, pat, mundane responses. And I'm guilty of that as well. I'm guilty of asking people as I'm walking, hey, man, how's it going? Good, all right, see ya. And I don't even stop to hear the response. They may be like, man, Jared, I have this bunion on my foot. Let me tell you about this thing. And I'm like, okay, good seeing you, all right. Don't ask someone how they're doing if you don't want a genuine response. What about this? When we get emotional in our suffering and we cry, we apologize. In ministry, you go to a lot of funerals. And I've seen this time and again. Someone's given the eulogy or they're sharing some beautiful thoughts about the deceased. And they start bawling. And then saying, I'm so sorry, forgive me. Forgive you for what? Crying? Grieving? Your loved one just died. I think it's okay to mourn. We put on this facade looking squeaky clean. But here's the thing. Life is not squeaky clean. What if instead, what if right after this service, what if instead we were honest with each other and someone asked you how you're doing, if you're not doing well, you're like, you know what, I'm not doing great. There's this thing in my job and my family, there's this health concerns, I'm not doing well. Try it, you will freak some people out. Good, we need that. We need to be real and genuine and vulnerable with one another because that's community. How can we bear one another's burdens if we keep hiding them and stuffing them down? Suffering tries to shame us. But here's the awesome thing. What's awesome is that hope does not put us to shame. We have hope because in our suffering, God is with us. He pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so when we suffer, he suffers. He suffers with us because he is with us. And we can pray, Lord, I am suffering And in my suffering, I cannot endure. I cannot go on anymore. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. I know. This is hard, but I'm with you in your suffering. And I have suffered for you. I was mocked. I was beaten. I was shamed. I was scorned. I was crucified. So that I could bear your sin and bear your sufferings. Look at these scars. 
these scars exclaim that I can bear your heaviest burdens and your biggest wounds. Give me your pain, son. Give me your shame, daughter. And I will take that pain and I will take that shame and like coal into diamonds, I will turn it into hope through my love and grace in the Holy Spirit. And I just imagine, we can't see Jesus physically right now, but I just imagine in our suffering, in our pain, we pray and Jesus is like right there. He's like, forget about your persecutors. Forget about the troubles. Forget, just focus on me. Just focus on me. Just look at me. I'm right here. I'm right here with you. Just focus on me. Look at my face. We don't suffer alone. And this verse says God's love is poured into our hearts lavishly, abundantly through the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.8, which we'll look at next week, is one of the most well-known verses in the Bible for good reason. It says, for God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And he demonstrates that through the most extreme loving act in history. In our suffering, remember the gospel. His love never gives up. The greatest suffering in the history of mankind grants us hope in our sufferings. And so how do we rejoice in our sufferings? Where does that hope come from? Well, it's verse 2 that's the key. The hope of God's glory. We're not hoping for popularity, material prosperity, medical health. We hope expectantly, knowing that it will happen, that even in our suffering, God is glorified. And when you see suffering in that light, when you see suffering in that light, namely that it is opening up new possibilities for God to receive glory as he shapes your character and gives you hope, you are more likely to rejoice in those sufferings. That, my friends, is triumphant confidence in the glory of God. And so, in your suffering, ask God for eyes to see the hope I haven't told you this, most of you. My mom has a disease called multiple sclerosis, MS. If you're not familiar with it, it's basically where your own immune system is attacking the insulation around your nerves. And so it causes all kinds of pain and all kinds of symptoms. It's different for each person. And as of yet, they don't yet have a cure. My mom has had this most of my life. It started rearing its ugly, horrific head when I was in high school. And every year I see my mom getting progressively worse. To the point now that she is confined to a wheelchair. She can't walk, she can't stand. She hasn't done that in years. She really can't even move her arms. She has caregivers during the day that feed her and help her go to the bathroom and help her lay down and move. The, uh, the muscles around her lungs have worn away to the point that she has about 25-30% lung capacity, so she struggles with every breath. She has constant pain throughout her body. My dad tells me that the shooting pains down her leg are so severe that sometimes in her sleep, she's screaming and writhing in pain and agony. And because she's human, she asks a question that we all ask, God, why? God has not answered that question, nor does he have to. And yet, 
over the years, I have seen growth, spiritual growth in my mom. I've seen her exude godliness. I've seen her faith. She's one of the most incredible women of faith I've ever met. I mean, she reads her Bible every day, meditates on it, memorizes scripture. She prays passionately and earnestly every day. She goes to church every week. She has ladies over for Bible study. She shares her faith with, any, with anyone she can. She has led a few of her caregivers to the Lord. And so I see hope in her. In fact, she's probably listening to this recorded sermon right now. And mom, you don't see this, but I see godliness exude from you. I see hope in you. I see God producing from suffering endurance, endurance character, and character hope. She has hope in God's glory. And that's what's pulling her through, that one day she will see the face of Jesus. That one day there will be no more pain, there will be no more agony, there will be no more anguish, no more tears. That one day she won't need her wheelchair. She will run the streets of gold and kneel at the feet of Jesus and worship him forever and ever. Amen. you have that hope? Do you have hope and despair? There's only one word I would give to someone who asks, how can you have that? It's this, Jesus. Jesus. We have hope in Jesus. We just sang it earlier, and we're going to sing it here again. And should this life, I should say, when this life brings suffering, Lord, I will remember what Calvary has bought for me both now and forever. God, you're so 